Welcome and thanks for checking out this podcast from First International Christian Fellowship. The following message you are about to hear was carefully crafted with you in mind. Wherever you are joining us from, we hope that this message speaks to you as it did to us. Now here's Richard Fenimore delivering this week's sermon. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, for this time that uh, we're together in your word. Help us to um, just push everything aside for the time being, just to be with you and your word and your Holy Spirit, who is the true teacher of the word of God. I just um, pray, Lord, to help me to get out of your way and to teach the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. I um, call this grace and truth. Uh, most people don't think about it, but grace is God's policy. And truth is his orientation to life and to his word. We'll be covering uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 10 through uh, 6, 2. You know, when, when you teach, you always have to be uh, really careful. And I think when, you know, when Joe and, and others teach that, our greatest desire is to get out of God's way. <laughs> you know, it's not, uh, it, it's, not the, uh, it's not what you would think. Most people don't think that way. But in reality, that the more I'm in God's way, the less I teach that truth. And... Uh, and People who love the Lord never want to do that. So we're going to go over verse 10. Uh, Joe actually handled this last week. It's worth 11. But I wanted to touch bases with it because there's a word in it that comes into my, uh, onto the other verses that's, that's, uh, that's important. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, for, each of us, <clears throat> for each of us may receive what is due uh, for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, the, the reason that I'm looking for this, the word appear is, is, the, is, the, is the first word. It's actually mentioned twice in the following sentence, uh, the following verse, verse 11. But it means to be manifest. Um, so it says appear here, but that's what it's really talking about. about being manifest. It's about being uh, perceptible. It's about being obvious to, to somebody. Um, but the, the, uh, the, the other word I look at here is that the word uh, judgment seed of Christ here, many times you'll hear the expression, maybe you heard it before, it's called the Bema seat, B-E-M-A, Bema seat. It's a reference to the judgment seat of Christ. And this word here for judgment is the word Bema. You know, it's, it's the judgment seat of Christ is the Bema. It's actually the Greek word for it. So it comes up here. Um, but I want to mention one thing about the, this is whether it's good or bad, and I just talked about this in, in our class in Revelation because the same thing came up, <clears throat> this very verse, is that it isn't actually good and bad that's there. It's actually good and worthless. Um, the good is not human good, but the word is agathos. It means good of intrinsic value. It's the good of God. It's divine good that's done through us. And the, the word, the word uh, for bad actually isn't, like I said, it wasn't bad. It's, it's the word uh, phanos. And it means refuge. It means excrement. Uh, for you guys know what that means. Cheap and trivial. So the reality is that Christians go to the judgment seat of Christ with two things that they're going to be judged by, discerned by. They're not going to be judged like in condemnation. They're going to be discerned by Christ himself, who has perfect vision and knows everything that we do and why we do it clearly, conspicuously. And one hand, that'll be the things that we've done with the Holy Spirit in the direction of God's word. And the other hand, it'll be the things that we did that we thought were right and good. Now, what's important about that is that Christians need to know one from the other. Because what's going to happen, if you remember the verse that Joe read last week, is that when you get to the judgment seat of Christ, the good things, when, they, when, they, when Christ puts them on their fire, they will reveal that they are gold, silver, and precious stones. 
And the other stuff, the stuff that we have done, that we've done for Christ in our own power, that'll be like wood, hay, and stubble. And when you put fire on it, it goes to smoke and dust. Okay? So it means that whatever time that God has given you to live, you have wasted it. And why have you wasted it? Because you are ignorant of the Word of God and what He requires of you. It's your choice. God gives it to you. But it is the desire of the Lord to know, to have you know that truth. And that's what we're really talking about here is the truth uh, of God's Word. For we must appear in the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due to us. Now, like I said, the judgment is not a judgment of condemnation because we're familiar with the verse that says, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So, if you're worried about sins or, or that you don't have to worry about sins because they were paid for the cross. Never to come up again, right? I love that part. As far as the east is from the west. That's how far they were. So when you confess a sin, if you bring that sin back up to God, God God's going to say to you, I don't know what you're talking about. Okay? And he knows all things. So, but we're going to get a do here, and that do is going to be between doing the things that God has instructed us clearly in his word. And the things that we have been told by others are godly, but are not. That we have thought was good, but are not. So if you want to get to that, uh, uh, my personal hope is that my golden silver will be nice and big, and the other stuff will be small. Okay? But some people, many people, I would imagine the majority of Christians, when they get to the judgment seat of Christ, their works will be set on fire, and they will have nothing, or very little. Because they are ignorant of the Word of God. The Ministry of Reconciliation. Now, when I first started reading this thing, I was kind of humored by it. And I'll tell you why. It's because I am not an evangelist. Okay? I don't have an evangelist bone in my body. But I do know the gospel. And I know the doctor of the gospel. Um, and I thought to myself, Joe would have been great for this. Charles would have been great for this. Uh, because they are both good evangelists, but I did not get that gift. But good for me that this is talking about doctrine, and I can handle doctrine. But uh, I won't be evangelizing you tonight since you're all saved anyway, right? Um, since, then, since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. Um, what we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. I don't know about you, but that's kind of confusing. Um, but the first thing that comes up here, let me, let me reread it in a way that it's, I think it's translated better. It says, since we know what it is that causes fear of the Lord, keep on persuading people, but we are made manifest to God. I hope this is manifest to your conscience. And what it means is that the first question that comes out of here is that, and, and, I, and I love this part because the first thing I hear is that, okay, so tell me what is the fear of God? That's not a real question. I'm going to answer it for you. Don't worry. Don't, don't, get, don't sweat. Not asking your hands. What is the fear of God? When, when an unbeliever has a fear of God, what is that fear? Now, one of the problems we have is we become Christians. God cleans up our life so good that we actually start to think it's about us. You know, we start to think that we're better people. Okay? Um, and we are. We're better because we're saved. We're better because hopefully we do what God asks us to. But in reality we're pretty much the same, okay? And I'll tell you what I'm missing here. What's being missed here is that why are people afraid of God because they don't understand his grace? 
They don't understand his grace. Now, I don't know about you. My favorite part of God is his grace, okay? God's not going to hold me responsible for being stupid. He's not going to hold me responsible for my sins, okay? I, I love that part about God. So what happens when people come to God, usually, it is their fear of his power and of his judgment, which we were too. Before we were saved, we had that same fear. The gospel is the teaching of grace. In order to have somebody hear you, this sounds funny, you don't want to scare the you-know-what out of them. I don't think I can say hell, right? Oh, I can say hell. This is church. Yeah, there's hell. You can scare the hell out of them. Um, and what I mean by that is that when you tell somebody, you know, if you don't believe in God, you're going to hell. That's a great message, okay? Sure sounds like good news to me, you know? And, and if you know, the reason I say that, as most of us know, the word gospel means good news. It, it, it means good news. It means that it's good news. So in order to approach somebody who has fear of God, because people who do not, not know God do not know how gracious he is, you know? If I'd have known how gracious God was, I believe that I would come to him sooner. But my idea of God was that he was mean. You know, bad things happen. You do what I tell you to or I'm going to smoke you. I'm going to put flames on you. You know, that's a... But what I didn't know is that God is the most gracious, loving, kind being in the universe in an infinite way. He is. And I'll tell you right now, if God could save everyone, he would. We know the verse, right? The verse says, it is God's desire that all men be saved. But are all men saved? No. Is God lacking power? Conundrum, huh? You don't, you, what's the answer to that? It's confusing. God does not violate volition. Volition is the word for choice. It means that God gave you a will, and you have to choose him. You have to. Or you're not going to heaven. End of conversation. There's no other way. There's only one way. Okay? The, um, so it's ignorance of grace. And many times when believers are talking about the gospel to somebody, they forget the grace. They forget the grace. Okay? Um, the word here in persuade, up here, the word persuade is two things. It's a word that doesn't mean persuade like to sell. It sounds like to sell somebody something. The word actually means to make something clear, to present the evidence clearly. The evidence of Jesus Christ, the evidence of the cross, the evidence of the resurrection. Okay? And it's also, in which, and I'm going to talk about this a lot, so it's only one thing I'm teaching you in Greek grammar. It's called the present active indicative. Okay? The present active indicative has a something that the English language doesn't have. It means to keep on doing something. Okay? So it says, we try, we try to keep on making the evidence of Christ clear to others. That's what that says. Okay? It says here that we are clearly seen by God. Um, and he says, what this means that, you know, because it's not, he's making a comparison here. The word for it is to make something perfectly clear and known. And what it says here is that God knows us 
perfectly clear. Okay? I love that part because you know something? You can't hide anything from God. Your deepest, darkest, nastiest thoughts have always been known by God forever. That's good because then you can kind of give that up. You know, I think that's cool. Um, but what it's saying here is he's making a comparison. Paul's making a comparison by saying, he says, you know God knows us perfectly. And he, the word he says here, he says, and I hope it, it, what's the it? See, whenever you read the word of God, you always have to ask your question, who's he talking about? Who's talking about here? Who is this person he's talking to? Who does the who refer to? What does the it refer to? Okay? And this it right here is talking about Bible doctrine. It's talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Doctrine of Jesus Christ. It's called soteriology. It means to know how the Savior did it. That's what it means. Okay? So the it is the doctrine of salvation. And what he's saying, he's saying, and I hope it, the gospel of, of God, of Jesus Christ, the doctrine. I hope it is, and he uses the same word. Plain it says here, but it's not plain. It's the same word he's talking about with God. He's saying to be perfectly perspicuous. Now that means a word that, that's a word that means perfectly crystal clear. Okay? And he says, and is plain into your conscience. Now, conscience, we, we don't know much about conscience, but conscience is, um, what it is, it's, um, it's the norms and standards of your, of your mentality, okay? It's, it's your brain. It's the way it works. It's the things that you hold to be absolutely unequivocally true, okay? So what this verse is telling us, it says, he's comparing God. He says, as God knows us perfectly clear, I hope that you know the gospel of Jesus Christ in that same clarity. I hope you know it in your mentality. So you are not lost for words, okay? So that you don't present the gospel stupidly. That's a good word. I love the word stupid. I was trying to figure out how to get in there. But, so, you don't, so you're not ignorant. Okay? I want to break it to you. If you don't know the gospel, you don't know the basic elements of Christianity. And shame on you. Okay? We'll get to it, though. It's actually pretty simple. Okay? It's really simple. Okay? So verse 12. Is still up there? Yeah, good. It says, we are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. <sighs> Boy, you have to sort through these things, huh? Sometimes the Lord makes you work. Um, so the better one piece with this, we said, we commend not ourselves, but give you, the Corinthians, an occasion to glory through us, okay, not, not to us, but through us, that you might have something in opposition to those who boast about the outer appearances rather than the heart. Now, what this means to say, he's saying, he is saying that by teaching Bible doctrine to you, Corinthians, <clears throat> we are giving you an opportunity to glorify God, not us, okay? 
And so he's really saying here, so he's saying, he's saying, right now you are, these people are telling you all these things that have to do with the world, about how great they are, about how it is to be paid, and how it is to do all these things for them. But in reality, we teach you Bible doctrine so that you have the opportunity to straighten these people out and have them see who God really is, okay? Who he truly is. And this is saying, in the heart. So he's asking them, he says, what? You need to discern what the world wants for you that sounds good. Because remember, these people are Judaizers. They're telling them morality. They're saying, I want you to tell you how to be good. This is how you do to be good. Okay? You believe in Christ, and you, you follow the Mosaic law. Those are mutually exclusive, by the way. You cannot do both. Okay? They are not the directions of Christianity. Okay? What he's saying there, he says, I want you to be able to discern which is which. I want you to understand the things that God's doctrine gives, which are perfect jewels, perfect gold, perfect silver. And I want you to be able to be able to understand that so well so that you can give that to them, your opposition, these people who are telling you things are not true. So they and you will glorify God. Okay? It's, a, it's an opportunity to counter pseudo-love. Pseudo-love means that which is not true. Okay? Worldly, physical, beautiful, prosperous. In our time, we have something very simple, very similar. We have people who teach the prosperity gospel. Okay? This is the stuff of the world. You know, if God wants you to give you money, trust me, you'll have so much money you don't know what to do with it. But a lot of times he can't give you money because you would destroy yourself with it. So he won't. He loves you too much. Okay? It is important, it is important what God sees in you, not what other people see in you. That's his point, okay? You're accountable to God, measured by his truth, which is the word of God, which is called Bible doctrine. Bible doctrine is the principles that we find in the Bible. They're not a cute story about Jonah and a whale that's not a whale, Okay? It's the truth. Okay? Jonah, you're an idiot. You think you can run away from God? You're a moron. You're going to get spit up by some stupid fish. That's the lesson. Don't run from God. It's a mistake. He's powerful, all-knowing. Um, but the fish story does sound kind of cool. The orientation piece. These, the, these others glorify in the outer appearance. That's what he's talking about. But not in the heart. The heart is not here. So that woke you up, huh? Me too. Okay. The heart's not here. Whenever it talks in the Bible about the heart, it's not talking about here. It's talking about here. It's talking about the mentality of your soul, the essence, the point of what you are. Okay? It's you. It's that piece of you, that essence of you. It's called the mentality of the soul, sometimes called the mind, but the mind's more pervasive. The, the, the heart itself, when it says that, you're, you're, that he wants you to understand your heart, he wants you to understand it in the deepest part of who you are. Okay? First John 1, I don't want to have it up there. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was very exacting. And what he's doing here is John's making a comparison. God gave us perfect truth in the Mosaic law. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace has to come. Grace is the essence 
of who God is. It is the way that God deals with us all the way, all the time. And if you don't think that's true, my, my suspicions are if God held you responsible for your behavior, there would be nobody here, including me. Okay? From the perfect truth, that's what it looks like. So grace is the policy of God. It's the way he does things. It's always his policy. If you're a complete moron and you come to Jesus Christ, he will save you. Okay? If you're the poorest person, he'll save you. If you're a bad person, he'll save you. If you're the chief of sinners, that's Paul's name, he'll save you. Truth always orients us. That's what it does. Okay? That's what is there. God, Jesus Christ gave us a truth that was not given before. Okay? It's called the mystery doctrine. I love this particular one here. It says, if we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are uh, in our right minds, it is for you. Now, what he's saying here, though, interesting, the word if, see, if there's two of them, um, those are what they call in Greek a first-class condition. Now, there's four conditions on an if. An if can mean four different things. It can mean uh, yes and it's true. It means you, you, yeah, you wish it was true, but it's not. Um, maybe it is, maybe it's not. That's called a third-class condition. And the fourth-class condition is one you wish it were true, but it is not true. Okay? So the second one was actually if and it's not. This is a first-class condition. So he's saying... If we are out of my, our minds, and we are, okay, so as some say, it is for God. If and we are in our right minds, it is for you, okay? Now, the word here, first of all, the, the word out of your mind is not out of your mind. The word is a maximum, it's a word for maximum emotion, okay? But look who the maximum emotion is directed to, God, okay? Now, people who know me know I'm not much on emotion. I can barely find them, you know. Um, I have to ask my wife what they are because she knows. But um, this is not that. What this is saying is that if, if we have maximum emotion towards God because we know him, we love him, we know how kind he is, I know how stupid I can be, God does not hold that against me. He protects me from myself. He protects me in spite of my ignorance. I don't know about you, but that's the kind of, I'll use a euphemism, that's the kind of guy I want on my team. Okay, I, I love God, okay? And what he's saying is that if you, what happens here is that the, the emotion is actually what they call an appreciator of the soul, okay? It's when your mind grasps something and your soul says, I love that, okay? When we hear the Star Spangled Banner, we feel that way. In the United States, if you are a patriot of this country, when you hear it, you love the country. It, make, that makes you, it makes you well up. Okay, and, and, and that's interesting because even in spite of how stupid this country has been lately, we still love it. Okay, it's, a, it's, a, it's an emotion that we have because we know what it can be. We know that it is a beacon in a really black world. Okay, we love this country. Now, take this, what he's saying here, he says, but with God, when I understand who God is, I have maximum emotion. I'm not talking about weeping. I'm not talking about any of that stuff. I'm talking about appreciation, the deepest appreciation that my soul has because I know God is of the maximum. 
And that's what he's talking about here. When we have it. If, if you notice, whenever you're talking, if, if you love God, and I'll say if and you do, okay, and you actually clearly understand who he is, and the only way you can clearly understand God is you have to know him. Otherwise, what happens is you end up with emotional. You end up with all this weird emotional stuff. And people act weird. But an example, I'll use my wife. I love my wife. I know who my wife is. I know all of her faults. I know her fears. Oh, she's going to watch this later. <laughs> better stop there. I know my wife. I watch everything she does. She's the most beautiful woman in the world to me. I know her. I know her fears. I know her faults. I love her faults. I think they're cute. Drives her crazy when I say that, but it's true. Why, why do I love her so? It's because I know her. She, she, is, she is the kindest person that I know. She's kind. See, I'm not a kind person, okay? I'm not. God had to teach me to be kind, so I work on it all the time. My wife is like kind out of the box. You know, she just, you have to do, push her the other way, okay? Me, I'm already over there. I have to push myself this way. But she's very kind, and I love that part. And she, she loves the Lord much more than she loves me. That was the first thing that attracted me. She loves the Lord. She wants to know who he is. I was impressed. When I first met her, I thought, who are you? <laughs> I've never seen anybody like you before. Anyway, so, so it was the first thing I fell in love with her about. And that was before I really knew her. So this is the same thing with God. You know how when you really love God and you talk about him, people who do not know God, what do they think? You're out of your mind. Okay? So that's what that is. Okay? Because in this respect, if, if human beings are the measure of us being out of our mind, then we're happily crazy, right? We're happily out of our minds. If this, if this is the truth, and it is, and we, and we show that, then I gladly accept that title. If that's a fool, that's the fool I want to be. Okay? Now, the, the, the love that you have for God, it's the first love. Remember the first love it talked about in Revelation? That he, they lost their first love? That's what happens to Christians when they keep themselves from church, when they keep themselves from Bible study, when they keep themselves from reading the Word. You, we, as human beings, naturally flow away from God. We do. It's just true. I don't know why it's true, but it's true. It's the way that we're made. Now, this part right here um, where it says, um, if we are in our right minds, it is for you. What he's talking about, the word here yeah, and I love this. Well, let, me, let, me, let me read it first. It means stability of mentality. It means soundness of mind. It means not emotional, but sound. Um, I was reading about George Washington today. I was reading about a 900-page book on him. And it was talking about how he was in one of the battles when, they, when the British were trying to leave uh, New Jersey. And just chaos was going on. And George Washington came up to that thing, and by the way, he was a great believer, if anybody read anything about him. But he came up in that situation, he looked at the chaos, and he goes, what is happening here? And he just started giving orders, straightening everybody out. His sound mind, in the view of that craziness, was the stability we're talking about here. Okay? His stability was based on the word of God, if you've read anything about George Washington. Okay? In chaos, his mind was sound. It was stable. And, and in view of everything around him. He stopped everybody, said, what are you running for? Let's, let's find a place to sit aside and talk. 
So, right? There's all this stuff going on. And he does that. There's thousands of men on the field with guns and running and stuff. This is this part right here. It is the sound mind, okay? Now, my, my part that's funny about this is that Paul needed a sound mind in order to talk to the Corinthians. Because it's talking, it's like, um, I, have to, I always have to watch out like in trouble. It, it, it's like um, when you're talking to somebody who is not stable, it is more important for you to be stable to help them be stable. Okay? It is important to be the sound mind in a group. Because when you're not, you actually contribute to the instability. Okay? And so that's what's happening here. So in reality, Paul doesn't have a rapport, really close rapport with him, because he's, they're kind of jerks, right? Especially where we're at now. They're kind of jerks. So what happens, but if you look the way he talks to them, he talks to them very stable. He doesn't get emotional about it. He doesn't get worried about that. He doesn't chastise them. He, he chastises them, but he does it very stably, right? He, he doesn't get weird. He doesn't call them names when they actually deserve it. Um, so that's what he does. Um, what's important about this, what I thought was funny about this particular, this, this word, the word here, the Greek word, is the word for sophomore. Okay? Sophomore. I don't know if you know any of these sophomores, but they're not stable. Okay? That's been my experience. And the word kind of tells you that because this sophomore <laughs> in the Greek is the word Sophia and the word moron put together. Okay? Um, and that's, a, that's what I think a sophomore actually is. But, but they use it for the mental stability. I think it's kind of funny. Um, so, how, so how do you have a, how do you have a stable mentality as a believer? You orient yourself to the Word of God. The stability of the Word of God is the most stable thing in the entire universe. What we stand on every day is less stable than the Word of God. Okay? And grace, when we look at the grace of God, we, look, we pair our knowledge up that He has given to us and our character of God, and you put them together, and what do you get? You get faith and stability. That's what you get. That's why it's important. It's the foundation. That's what he's trying to get them to. Grace, that's supposed to be sits. I spelled it wrong. Um, grace sits on truth. The stability of the mind is when grace. Grace comes when you understand who God is, and understanding who God is is understanding Bible doctrine. And grace only sits on top of that when the bottom one is true. When you know Bible doctrine, grace comes from you. When you do not know Bible doctrine, grace escapes you, and you go to legalism. Legalism belongs to Satan. Okay? Its most prevalent place that you find it is in churches. Okay? When you don't understand grace, it's because you don't understand Bible doctrine. Because if you understand Bible doctrine, you not only know the truth, but you know God in the truest sense of that word. Christ died, <coughs> Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one, that one died for all, and therefore all died. Um... It says, we are constantly, the word here is that, we are constantly motivated by the love of Christ. That's what that says. Remember that word present, act, indicative? 
That's what I was talking about. The word compel here is not compel. It's actually the word to be motivated. Okay? The initiator is Christ's love for motivation. If you wonder why you don't do more for God, it's because you don't have love for him. You may have an emotional love, but you don't have true love because true love motivates obedience. It motivates all that we do. It is the motivating factor for everything Christians do. It's the love of Christ. And guess what? The problem with love is, is that you have to understand who you love. Just like my wife, if I don't understand it, I can think she's hot. And I do, but well, I got in trouble for that one too. She's good looking. Okay, so she's really nice, okay? But that does not motivate me to love her. I mean, desire her, but it doesn't motivate me to love her. You have to know somebody to love them. So if you spend, if you spend the, the same amount of time with the person that you love as you do with the Bible, both will suffer. <laughs> okay? The, um, the point of this whole thing is that the function of Christianity is based on loving Christ. That, that's what it is. When you have one problem with one, it's the other. An example of that is like, we're going to talk about ambassadorship. Better get moving pretty quick. Ambassadorship. Is that the ambassadorship that we have is 100% dependent on the priesthood that we have in Christ. Okay? Now, if you're familiar with the difference between those two, the priesthood is our relationship with God. Our ambassadorship is our relationship with people. If you do not have a perfect, I'll say perfect in Christ, if you don't have a perfect relationship and love the Lord, it shows up in your ambassadorship. You have no motivation. Okay? They go one and one. This part here says, this is well, we are convinced... That word's not convinced. That word's discern. We discern. We discern what? We discern one died for all. How did, you, how did you discern that? You discerned it from Bible doctrine. You decided because the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ died for all. Okay? And therefore all died. We died in Christ. Galatians 5.22-23. This is the piece that's really important. This is the part I think is missing, missing in Christianity. See, Christianity has come to the point where it thinks that something we do, we can do for God. It's all about doing. It's not about doing. This is the piece that tells us that. It says, but the fruits of the Spirit... Hmm, why didn't they put Richard in there? Okay? Why didn't they put Richard? Why didn't they put... Put your name in there. Why, why the Spirit? Why not us? The, the, the fruit of the Christian is love. That's not what it says. It says the fruit of the Spirit. So, how do you get the fruit of the Spirit? You have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Not just indwell. You have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He is the operational power of Christianity. He is God's power. God does not do godly things without godly truth and godly power. Guess what your part is? You choose. Sound like, that sounds like the exact same equation 
for when you got saved. Right? Did you do anything to save yourself? No, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says you didn't. You did zero. Not even that much. Zero. For it's by grace you have been saved through Christ. Okay? It's the same thing. God did not change his modus operandi. He didn't sit there and say, okay, you know something? I want you to be saved this way by grace, but guess what? I want you to be a working fool on this side for Christianity. It doesn't work that way. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why it says it is the fruit of the Spirit. When you walk with the Lord and the truth of the Lord and you walk in the Holy Spirit, your spirit produces Christ-likeness. Spirit is in love, the love of God, the joy of God, the peace of God, the forbearance of God, the kindness of God, the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, the gentleness of God, and you are self-controlled. It's not your joy. It's not to say your joy. It doesn't say your peace. If you're talking about how you feel or what you do, you don't understand this verse. This verse says that God does it through you when you humble yourself and you submit yourself to the truth of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Just like Jesus Christ. He didn't do it any other way either. That's how he did it. Same way. Not a second way. There's only one way God accepts it. And he raised again. That here? No. Next one. I'm already in the next verse. So let's go to the next verse. He says, and he... Right. And he died for all. This is a good piece. There's actually repeated the verse before where it talks about died for all. For those of us who should not live no, should live no longer for themselves, but for him. Who's the him? Jesus Christ. Okay. When it says no longer live for themselves, it means that you're being self-centered. This is a recommendation. This is an imperative that God has given to us. Who died for them people he's talking about here, in this case, uh, people who are saved, and was raised again. So it shows the cross and the resurrection side by side. Um, right this minute, Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father. That's where he's at right now. And he's, he's not here, except in us. We are his representatives. Okay? We are Christ to the world. I was thinking about this piece here. He says, you know, we talked about the gospel. It says, the gospel is really easy. It says, he died for all. And I don't know about you. There's, there's a part of Christianity that somehow misses that. Okay. To me, it's that, you know something? I'm so glad Jesus died for all. Now, you can't say that outside of regular circles. In Christianity, you get that. Okay. Because you're never supposed to hope that somebody died. Okay. But I am so grateful that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. He died for all. Now, let's just kind of take this away. He died there by grace. What does that mean? It means that I don't have to take anything with me. I don't have to take anything and put it on the altar of Christ for me to be saved. And nobody else does either. They don't have to be good to be saved. A lot of times people say, well, you know, I, I, I'm a really bad guy. You don't have no idea. So was I. So, come anyway. Guess what? His grace is sufficient. Don't have to be good, don't have to be rich, don't have to be smart, don't have to be pretty. I can go on forever. Okay? You don't have to be. Okay? You just have to humble yourself and believe what the Bible tells us. This is the message you're giving to unbelievers. It says, guess what? <laughs> this is a great thing. God is so great, he saved somebody like me. 
Is that cool or what? I mean, that tells me that if God saved me, you're a piece of cake. Okay? I don't know about you, but if somebody told me that, I'd say, that's great news. You mean, you mean, you mean I don't have to, I don't have to like be good? I don't have to get better? Nope. Mm-mm. This is going to sound horrible, and it's not something you're using. You don't have to change one tiny bit to be saved. How do I know that? Grace. What's grace? Grace means that there's no strings attached. Nothing, zero, zilch. If I become, if I believe in Jesus Christ, and this is going to be against everything you've heard, if I believe in Jesus Christ for a moment, and I decide I like my old way of life, I'll be miserable, but I can still go back to it. I can just be as miserable as I want, and then someday I'll die, and guess what? I'll pop up in heaven because of grace. Now, I can't think of an unbeliever who wouldn't take that offer. Guess what? Yeah. You don't have to worry about fire insurance. I'm telling you that my God is so gracious that this is the offer he has on the table. This is it. How do I know that? Thief on the cross. This is always a joke. Okay. Did, the Jesus, did, the, did, the, did the thief on the cross have to raise his hand to come down? No, no, that wasn't going to happen. Did he have to conf- what did he have to do? Did he have to go to church, do an offering, serve? What did he have to do? Nothing. He was dead hours later. He brought zero to the cross. Okay? And Christ saved him in spite of that. In fact, it says, even this day, thief, you will be with me in paradise. That's the confirmation. That's the acid test. The gospel is so much bigger than we think. Because we always want to say, well, you know, now you're going to have to go to church. You have to straighten your life out. No, no, no. Stay away from that. That's not in the Bible. Okay? That's a result. It's not a goal. The goal is, guess what? Christ died for you. And he doesn't require anything from you except faith. That's it. Just believe what I'm telling you. You're going to heaven. That's it. That's the end of the salvation message. It doesn't go on, to, doesn't go on from there. People take it on, but salvation happens at a point in time. It's by the grace of God. This is called the, this is called the, the doctrine of unlimited atonement. And this is the part where it says right here, it says, and he died for all. All. Not some. Not half. Okay? The, word, the Greek word here is all. Okay? Just wanted to check that. I'm just messing with you. He says, um, what does the doctrine of unlimited atonement mean? It means that there is enough grace and provision in the cross for everybody who has ever lived. Ever. It's just waiting there. Waiting there to be claimed. Not to be earned, just to be claimed. Just say, I want it. That's grace. That's the gospel. Don't make the world, don't make the gospel complicated. Okay? The gospel is real simple. We'll learn later that the gospel is real simple. All you do is, and you've heard this before, you just say, you know something? I was a moron too, like you, but I'm not anymore. I, I, I found this eternal life. I found this grace that God wanted to give me. And I said, I want that. And I was saved. And that's all there is to it. I don't have to understand the cross. I don't understand all that stuff. 
I just, I just know that God offered to me, and I said, I want that. I need that. I'm a sinner. It's that simple. That's the gospel. It has been paid for us for free. Free to us, but infinitely costly to somebody else. The first thing I looked at that, I said, that sounds crazy to me. It is. It is crazy, but it's true. 1 Timothy 4.10. That is why we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people. Not some. All. And especially for those who believe. What does that mean? Especially for, he is the, he is the it's called efficacious. It means that God, Christ died for everybody, but only those who choose it and pick that gift up does it belong to. If you leave that gift where it's at and go to eternity without it, you're going to have to stand on your own on the white throne judgment of Christ and explain why you're so good without him. First John 2, 2, just in case you didn't get it the first time. <laughs> he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. There's nobody left out. This opportunity is for everybody. What does it depend on? Faith. Faith. Faith like a child. Humility. That's it. Nothing else. Hmm. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ this way, but do, but do, but do not do so, uh, do not do so lo no longer. <clears throat> what this is saying is that you can understand how people, um, people don't see God right. They don't see Christ right. If you're not saved, you don't see him right. Okay? means that we once had that same view. So when people are apprehensive about Christ, why is that? It's because they're blind, okay? Satan has blinded them. And that, means, that doesn't mean that <clears throat> Satan somehow did something to them they didn't want done to them. It's a cooperation because Satan doesn't have the ability to do things that people don't cooperate with. I have to want to not know Christ for myself to be blind about Christ, okay? And what it means here is that, is that we were once, but before we were saved, we were blind too. You know, what happens when we, we, we give the gospel nowadays, we give it from this powerful life, hopefully I'm speaking for you, we give it from this powerful life of Christianity, and we forget what it's like to be on the other side. We, we forget what it was like to not understand the grace of God, not understand how wonderful Jesus Christ is. We, we, we have to go from their side. We have to go back and remember when we were afraid of Christ too. When we thought, I don't want to give up being happy. I still have partying to do. Call me when I'm 90. Okay, that was my attitude. Didn't make it very far, but 39. But that's not bad. Yeah, it's not bad. <clears throat> so I hope I said, you have to look at it from their point of view. It's saying, we don't, we don't regard people from a worldly view. We're supposed to regard them from God's view. Is that they are lost. They need a message that we have. This is the greatest message that has ever been told or said by the lips of men. Ever. 
It's the greatest message. And we have to remember how blind they are. So sometimes your job isn't to arm wrestle with them. It's just to tell them the truth. We're talking about it. Just simple. That's why Bible doctrine is so important. Because Bible doctrine is, this, is the foundation of the divine viewpoint. You cannot see as God sees without knowing the word of God. That's what their problem is. That's why they don't know who God is. That's why they resist the gospel. It's because there's no way that they can know who Jesus Christ is. All they can do is see it in us. Matthew 4, 4. Jesus, Jesus answered, it is written. Remember when this was? This was in the, he's in the desert. It says, man shall not live by bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is Jesus quoting Deuteronomy 8, 3. How much do you know about Deuteronomy? That's a joke. Um, most of us don't much about it, okay? But this is saying is that man does not live by bread alone. Is that, you know something? If you do not read the word of God and study doctrine, I'm not talking about pretty pretty stories in the Bible. I'm not talking about reading the words. I'm talking about studying the word of God. Study. Dig deep. Dive deeper. That's what I'm talking about. Because your soul, as a Christian, will starve to death if you do not. And our souls are wandering souls. We wander by nature. And what this does is it gives us a compass. It gives us a north, a true north. This is Psalm 1, one of my favorite verses, and actually the whole chapter, which is only like six long. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Keep God's principles in your mind all the time. Run them over your head. Bathe in them. The rest of this is that he's like the tree that, that, that's in the stream of water, and his fruit does not wither, and his leaves do not wither, and his fruit always produces. Okay? Why does that happen? Because he meditates on the word of God day and night. Okay? Our stability, the fruit of our lives, are based on the word of God. Okay? If we do not know it, it does not help us. It keeps the divine viewpoint and keeps you away from your own and others. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, um, the new creation has come, has, I, I scratched mine out, I'll read it up there, has come. Uh, the old has gone and the new is here. Now, this, this if here, this is another first class condition. It means if it is. As a, it says, if anyone, and if anyone is in Christ Jesus, and they are, they are a new creation. But it's interesting here is that the, the word, um, this, is, this is what they call um, positional truth. Okay? And what it, positional means, truth means that when we become saved at the very moment we become saved, we are that very moment a new creation. We don't, we don't, there's not a, there's not a, um, there's not like a runway. Okay? This is, this verse is not a runway verse. Now there is, this is what they call, uh, technically they call this positional sanctification. It means that God cleans you up the moment you got saved, just like that. Put the Holy Spirit in you, put Christ in you, and gave you eternal life. I mean, you just know, this is a bazillion thing. He gave, he gave us, if you look at William Lewis Chafer, he says there's 36 things that we all got the moment we got saved. Baptized by the Holy Spirit. That's what he does. We got associated with Christ. Our relationship with Adam, gone. Our relationship with Christ, now eternal. 
That's a great deal. That's why it always says in Christ. See, you look around, you'll see this in Christ over and over and over again. Okay? It's because we are in Christ and we will be in him forever. We will share his heritage. We will share everything about Christ we share with him. Okay? Um, the word for new here is, means new in species. That's an interesting thing. The word new, there's a very different word for, uh, there's another word for neos, which means new in time. This is not, this is new in species, meaning you're brand new. You're not like something that's before. This happens, like I said, at the baptism of the Holy Spirit, where you are put in perfect union with Christ, and that is an eternal union. You won't get out of it ever, which is a good thing. Okay? Um, the word for creation also means, it means creature, or it means new creation. Okay? And the part that says has come is not there. It happened at the moment of salvation. So if you look at the verse, the verse actually sits there and says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation, period. It means it's done. Okay? This is talking about your relationship with Christ. This is what he did for you. That is, your, that is the foundation of your Christianity. Everything else is built on top of it. Okay? That's why you're equipped. He equipped you. He kind of like gave you your bachelor's degree and said, hey, go to the master's. Yeah, that's what he says. He says, the old things are gone. Now, it's interesting here. When I first read this uh, years ago, I thought the old things, that must be the old sin nature. You know, that must have been the way I used to be. But it's not, that's not actually what it is. It, it's actually because, I don't know if you've noticed it, but the old sin nature seems to be pretty present, even in Christianity. I don't know about you, but mine seems to be there pretty frequently too. So it's not talking about the old sin nature. So what is it talking about? If you do the comparison, the old things is the spiritual death that we had before we got saved. Before we became this new creature, we were spiritually dead. Okay? We had no relationship with God. Okay? And the new thing, the new is here. What is the new? The new is spiritual uh, life. We now have spiritual life. We have the eternal life. Because eternal life is not living forever. Eternal life the life of God. I don't know if you know about it, but unbelievers live forever. It's just the place they live. You know, that's not the fun part. So the important part is that this is the eternal life, that it, it, the eternal life that we get from Christ, in Christ. And it is interesting is they use the perfect tense here, which means that it is a completed action. It's completed. It's done. You don't have to do that. God did it. End of conversation. You can't lose it. I like that part too, because trust me, even since I've been a Christian, which is like 27 years now, if it could be lost, I would have lost it, okay? Um, I've been a jerk plenty of times in my life, plenty, more than I like to admit to. Thank God, God says he keeps that secret. But it's a completed action, which means that it's done. It's all done. It's new, it's done, finished. This is the part I'm talking about here, the old things. It says here, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, that word die means die then, right there. Did Adam and Eve die after they ate the fruit? Did they? No. They lived for almost a thousand years. 
So, did God lie or is this a distant death? This is spiritual death. When they died, that was done. That was gone. That's what we're talking about in this verse here. That's the old things. Okay? And they died too. They died twice. They spiritually died at the moment they ate that, that, that fruit, just like it says. And they died physically. 900 years, like 990 years or something like that. The, um, this, verse is, this verse is important that you understand which one's which. Is that the problem is that when you're an unbeliever, you're born spiritually dead. And what gets reborn in you is the human spirit. That's the part that gets reborn. You get a human spirit. It's what they call trichotomous. You have a body, you have a soul, and you have a human spirit. That is the part that talks to God. Okay, that's in 1 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. <clears throat> now, th this word here, God, is from the Father, who reconciles us. This reconciliation noticed twice. It means that he reconciled us, and then he gave us that same ministry. Okay? The, um, in reality, it says... He reconciled God himself, God the Father, reconciled us through Jesus Christ, his agent of salvation. Okay? Now, notice I said Jesus Christ. I didn't say the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? People make a big mistake, and they say, well, God died on the cross. God did not die on the cross. Okay? If God can die, he's not God. That's why Jesus had to become a man. Because Jesus can die. Jesus can put the sins of the world on him. Can God put the sins of the world on him? No. The son was not exposed to that. That's the humanity of Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, what I like about this piece right here, it's a, it's a joke, okay? See what it says? It says, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And we know what the reconciliation part is, right? That's the part where what happens is that there's this big barrier between us and God. God's on one side, we're on the other side. And we can't get through. Jesus Christ took that barrier down. That's the gospel. Took it down, removed it. There's nothing between us and God except faith. That's it. The word I like here is the word ministry. This is the word, um, it's, uh, the word for deacon. Okay? This is the word for deacon. Guess what? From this, you guys are the deacons of the gospel of reconciliation. Now, deacon just means uh, a servant of God. So what, this, what does this tell you? What, what I like about this is that they give us titles when we serve the church, which is appropriate. But guess what? You do too. You all serve the, correct, serve the Lord. You are in full-time service, even as we are. It says right there, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's your ministry, reconciliation. Ephesians 4.10, he who descended is himself also. He who ascended far above all the heavens, so that 
he might fill all things. Um, and this is what Christ did for us. Uh, and this is what we do. The all things that he filled was doctrine. The doctrine of reconciliation that was not there before, but it is there now. There is no time in history where, the, where believers are called the deacons of, the deacons of the ministry of, of reconciliation. It's only now. This happened after the cross because this is when God could give us the ability to do it. Christianity has the ability in itself, every Christian, to be a minister of God with respect to reconciliation, the gospel. That God was reconciling the world, again, um, note the world, all, this is the same thing we talk about, he's not reconciling the privileged, he's not reconciling the, the chosen, he is reconciling the world, that nasty world, okay? We know all about the world, right? That's what we're not supposed to be like. But that's, that is our, that's our ministry ground. Right there. The world. It's not here. The gospel has its place, this sounds crazy, but does not have a place in here in the church unless there's somebody who's unsaved in here. Because guess what? You're saved. Right? If I tell you the gospel, what are you going to do with it? Yeah, you should be saying amen. It's true. Not for me. I'm already saved, thank you. But yeah, I'll take that out. The gospel happens out there. Okay? It happens in the world. Uh, the Father reconciled the world to himself, that's to himself, in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. What does that mean? It means that your personal sins have never and will never be accounted to you. Ever. They've always been accounted to Christ. They're done. 2,000 years ago, Christ took every sin that you ever committed, it, committed and was judged for it and paid that price. Even the sins you're going to do tomorrow. Well, maybe, right? Might, might, you might sin tomorrow. Could happen. And has committed to us the message of reconciliation. That's why it's so important. The gospel of reconciliation is critical. We are the agents of Jesus Christ, of God the Father, to the world. There's not a second one. It's really simple. Explain the message. Okay? God removed all the barriers. Number two, invite him to step over that line. Cross that barrier. The barrier's not there anymore. Come on, just come right across. Okay? Step over the line where the barrier used to be. Accept this truth, that Christ died for you. That's it. What's the gospel? Believe. Three, three simple things. All you have to do, you don't even have to memorize those. All you have to do is say, you know something? Christ saved me. It's there for you if you want it. That's how it's designed. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God, the Father, were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Okay? That's the gospel in a nutshell. We are ambassadors. 
And this says, this is in that present active indicative again. It says, you are ambassadors. You continue to be ambassadors. You will always be ambassadors until you die. The question is, what kind of ambassador are you going to be? Now, these ambassadors represent Jesus Christ. They represent, they're appointed by God himself. They're sustained by God himself. God, God will take care of you. Why? Because you're his ambassadors. Okay? As long as you don't muck it up. I mean, don't do stupid things. It makes, makes it really hard on God to do stuff. That's a joke. It's nothing too hard for God. But he does let you make your own decisions, right? We know that part. Um, ambassadors never represent themselves. They represent a king. When the world hates you and they're mad at you, they're not mad at you. They're mad at him. Okay? Ambassadors don't take that message personal. An ambassador doesn't say, well, how dare you say that? I'm out of here. We'd have nobody in the United Nations if that were true. We get insulted all the time. Okay? We're the same way. Remember what Jesus says? He says, if you are insulted, remember, I was insulted first, and they're insulting you because of me. It's not personal. It's nothing personal. They hate you. <laughs> That's a joke. Never mind. Okay. Um, the, the, the interesting thing about this piece here is that it also says um, to, to, in, 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 uh, to appeal. The words to appeal. It, it means to... Um, you're, you're making an appeal to the evidence, okay? The evidence is that Jesus Christ died on the cross. Now, people don't think that that's something that is, um, what's the word I'm looking for? People think that only says that in the Bible, but that's not true. Historians say that's true. Anybody who's read, read Will Durant, who's not a believer, especially when he wrote the book, he says that there is more evidence for Jesus Christ doing exactly what he said the Bible says, than there is for Julius Caesar. That's pretty impressive. That means, historically, there is evidence, and if you follow that evidence, you will find out that Jesus died, and he was resurrected. Why? Because he had witnesses. Hundreds of them. Real deal. The word, um, the word here... Um, also, in other words, it says, it says on Christ's behalf. This is the part where it says that what you are doing, essentially, is that you are coming alongside presenting the evidence. And then the, the, the word is actually used twice. It's the word paracletes. That he also, the Holy Spirit comes alongside of you and helps. Okay? Now, the reality is that we can mess the gospel up, but if you know what is true, is that the Holy Spirit is the one who teaches the truth of the gospel. Not you. You may speak the truth, but that doesn't help them understand it, okay? How do we know that's true? We know it from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, is that in reality, this unspiritual man does not have the ability to understand spiritual truths. He's blind to them. So this is where you're speaking that truth, and the Holy Spirit comes and speaks that truth and helps his mentality of his soul grasp that truth. That's how they're saved. That should take the pressure off. <laughs> Uh-oh, I'm getting in trouble here. Okay, I know I'm a little long. We'll, we'll wrap this up pretty quick. Okay, so what do we have here? God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the, this is the mechanics of reconciliation. This is what this says. It says, Jesus Christ had no sin nature, none. 
because of the virgin birth. Okay? He had no personal sins. This is what qualified him for the cross. Um, when we cross the line into salvation, we receive the righteousness of God. That's what God sees in us. Okay? God sees his righteousness. Now, men have what they call relative righteousness. It moves all over the place. God has infinite righteousness. So what God did in order to qualify us to come to heaven, he took his righteousness and he stuck it in you. Remember those 36 I was telling you, the time of salvation? That's one of them. And by seeing this righteousness, God loves his own righteousness. And when it's in us, he loves us for that very reason. Is that even though we're jerks, even though we sin, even though we are imperfect as imperfect can be, God does not see that. What he sees is his righteousness in Christ in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that's what he loves. That's why when you have your bad, worst, terrible day, God absolutely loves and adores you. Absolutely does. When a person is saved, God does all the work. That's called grace. You don't have to be strong. As a Christian, yeah, you don't have to be strong. What you have to be is humble. That's harder. Okay. Just two more verses. Hang in there. We're almost there. As God's co-workers, we urge you <clears throat> not to receive God's grace in vain. Now, the co-workers here is the part we were talking about. Okay? He's talking about all the Corinthians. Remember how I was telling you that, you know, Joe has a job, <clears throat> he's the pastor, then there's deacons, and then there's Charles, he's a pastor. We have, but you know something? We are all co-workers in the same plan. We all have the same direction. All of us. Okay? That's what it's saying here. And we urge you, remember that word back in 520? And it says, we beseech you, we implore you. Remember what he's talking about? He's talking about the Corinthians. To implore them, the unbelievers, to implore them about the grace of God. Paul's using this exact same word to Christians to, uh, to be co-workers. He says, I implore you to work for God. Okay? So the same thing that we use to the unbeliever is the same thing that God uses to us. I implore you. Okay? The word to receive here, where it says, I like this word, it says you do not receive God's grace in vain. This, this word to receive here, there's, there's two different words, but the, the, the word to receive here is the word to receive something gladly. Okay? What this means is that the greatest honor that God has given to you, you receive. The problem is you get confused about it if you don't know who God, what God's instructions are for to you. If you don't understand those instructions, you don't know what to do with it. You don't take up that. You have to understand when God puts something in front of you and before you, you are getting the greatest honor that a person can ever get. And you should be happy. You should desire it. You should grab it like it's gold because it is. It's just gold in eternity. Forever. If you want Jesus to look at you and say, great job, good and faithful servant, that's it. When God gives you that honor, you take it. And the vain part there just means without content. Don't pretend it's not something. It's the greatest things God's given to you. There's the last one. 
We're here. 6-2. For he says, he is God, in the time of my favor I hear you. In the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the time, is the day of salvation. This is a quote from Isaiah 49.8. And what it's really saying is that the time here is not time like in a moment. It's a time like an epic. It's like a piece of history, okay? And <clears throat> what he's trying to say here is that, and the word says, why well, I tell you, that's not true. What it says, it says, behold, okay? Behold is when you, this behold is twice. It's, um, where it says, I tell you, it should say behold. Behold is it would, uh, the, the word is edu, and it means pay attention. This is really important. I want, you, I want you to listen to this. So whenever you see behold, that's what it means. It means like, I'll hear this. Pay attention. This is critical. Okay? And he has it again. He says, and behold, now is the day of salvation. And what this means is that, that when he says, I heard, the, the word here is talking about God. And it says, God's saying, I heard your plea for help. I heard your plea, and I'm going to help you, okay? And what he's talking about is when people, this is called positive volition. The example is from Isaiah, when he realized in Hezekiah's time that, that what happened is that he was looking around. If you remember, Hezekiah is always talked about being a good king. He was kind of a moron, and I'll tell you why. If you remember what happened, remember what happened to him is that Isaiah went to him and said, hey, Hezekiah, guess what? You're going to die. Just wanted to let you know. Okay, and he walks out. Okay, now that's his cousin, by the way. They're cousins. So Isaiah's walking out, and what happens in the meantime, Hezekiah falls on his knees and he begs God, Lord, Lord, I'm so sorry. I've been an idiot king. Please give me more life. And then God taps on Isaiah. Hey, wait, wait, before you go out, go back and tell him, I'm going to give him 15 more years. <sighs> okay. Isaiah comes back to him and tells him, guess what? God has heard your prayers. Yeah, you are a fool, but he's going to give you 15 more years. Okay. Now, what's important about that is that that changed Hezekiah. Now, the problem is that the, the Assyrians were about to attack. Okay, this is like 800 BC. They're about to attack. The guy's name is Sennacherib. Okay, but you'll remember the story. <clears throat> but what happens here is that as Isaiah is, is distraught because the northern kingdom is full of a bunch of morons, he's looking at it and he realizes as he's looking around that there's all these people who desire salvation. They desire the Lord. Okay? They, they, that's, called pass, that's called positive volition. They, they're looking for somebody to bring that message. Well, Isaiah got really excited, and what he did is he started, he started talking to them. He started having more Bible studies and encouraging them. And so what happened is that a dying nation started getting strong by that. And then what happened is, you remember, Sennacherib came with his 185,000 Assyrians is going to wipe out Israel. You remember what happened? They all sat on the wall, they prayed, and they asked for deliverance. And guess what God did? Just in case you're anti-war. Okay? He came and killed 185,000 Assyrians. Now, another thing about the Assyrians, they were the toughest, meanest, most horrible warriors in history. There's nobody worse than them. I just remember about the, what's all these, who killed them? They're all dead. Remember that story? It's a nice story, but that's the purpose of it, okay? Michael's giving up on me now. <laughs> so the same thing happens with Paul. So why does Paul quote this? He quotes this because he sees the same thing in Corinth. 
this, this carnal churches, he sees that there are people in here who want to know God. And so he brings this message right to him. He says, now is the time of God's favor. God has heard your unspoken prayers. He knows that you are positive, and he knows that you need the gospel. That's what Paul's saying. He gets it. One last piece. So what does that have to do with you? What does it have to do with you right now? Okay? Now let me tell you a little personal part. Just, my mom was just ruin this whole thing, right? We're, we're late enough. Uh, you know, nobody's going to get any happier, right? <laughs> when I first came to this church, um, I was waiting for um, 10, 11, 12 years for God to make me, to change me from where I was at. I knew I wasn't supposed to be there, but God hadn't given me any instructions. Drove my wife crazy. I say, God hasn't told me. So I met Joe, and I met Charlie, and they both talked to me about coming to this church. Okay? And um, I, I said, well, I'll, I'll think about it. You know, I, and I told them start why I hadn't left the church I was at before. And, um, and I went to sleep, and my wife was saying, please go, please, I love Joe, I love him, he's a great teacher. Charles is going to be there. Nancy's going to be there. You know, I said, sorry, honey. I'm waiting for God to talk to me. Okay. So I went to bed. The next morning I wake up, and I hadn't quite woken up, but it, I hear the, the piece in the Scripture of Acts about the uh, Macedonian man. Remember the Macedonian man in, in Scripture? He's the guy who, when God says, sends a vision to Paul. Paul was going to go one place, and God said, no, 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 don't go there. Those people do not want me. Macedonia... They want me. Paul, go there. And he did. So I woke up and told my wife, looks like we're leaving. You know. I say that for this reason. Is that one of the reasons that God has put this church on my heart is because there is more positive volition here than I've seen in a church in a long ways. There are people who want to know God, who want to walk with God, who want to know the truth of God. God has sent me here to make this appeal to you, to be on fire for him, to evangelize, to walk with him. God has a plan for this church. He rose up Joe for a reason. He's put Charles here for a reason. He brought me here for a reason. He has your servants serving you to help you to be part of this exact appeal. Is that outside those doors, even though we're in Reno, outside those doors, there are people who have a great desire to know Jesus Christ. And that's why we're here. And that's what this appeal applies to us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for your great kindness towards me and for all of us that we, that we get to know you, that your gospel is simple, that it's personal. It's not big words, it's just you saved me and my life is different since that moment. I pray, Lord, that you put us... Uh, Put that desire in us to read your word and to know you and to put your love above all loves. I ask this in Jesus Christ who did exactly that. Amen. That's the end of today's message. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and want to support our mission of reaching others, help grow our ministry by visiting ficfreno.com give. To get the latest updates from our channel, hit the subscribe button. 
visit our Facebook page by clicking the link below to let us know how God is moving in your life.